All right, great to see you. I will make sure now that we've gone all fancy-pantsy with this video up there that I try not to do this too much because I might blind you with the reflection off my glorious scalp. <laughs> but we'll want, let the wonderful tech team sort that out. Let's give a round of applause to express our thanks to the tech team. All right. Really, I've got, apparently I've got five minutes. Start the clock now. Have you got an iPhone-y thing? Start the clock, okay? After five minutes, tell me to shut up. Here we go. Book reviews. Now, first of all, you need to read books. I know you think you can get through university without reading any books, particularly if you're an engineer or a scientist. There's these things called bookshelves, and they put books on them, and you can read them. Even if you don't need to read any books for your degree, you need to start expanding your mind. The first book to read, Bible. To help you understand the Bible better and to grow in your understanding of God and love for God, you need to start reading some Christian books. We have a great bookshop up there. You should, there should be no books left at the end of the week, except for the one that's up there that I think is rubbish. Don't buy that one. But I'm not going to tell you which one that is. I'll just go to... Just going to take it away so you can't find it. Okay, so all the others will be great. Now, uh, if we're talking about eschatology this week, here's two books on eschatology up there, both which are great. Um, Adrio Koenig is one I quoted the other day, The Eclipse of Christ in Eschatology Towards a Christ-Centered Approach. Really, really good. We read this as a staff team at the end of last year to get ready for this conference. Did it like a book club. We read it together. If you want to have your mind expanded, really read something good, grab this. That's fantastic. How much is it? $10. Ridiculous. Here's, an, here's a simple one that you can read and then probably recommend to people at church. 666 and all that on eschatology, the truth about the future. John Dixon, Greg Clark, great book, read that. $17. Why does it cost more for something with less content? I don't know, but it's probably easier to read. That takes some skill, I guess. Now, Get something on your shelf that's going to help you understand the Bible better. This book will do that. The Faith of Israel by Bill Dumbrell. Every book in the Old Testament, this gives you a theological overview of every book in the Old Testament. I use this all the time. Buy it, put it on your shelf and get into the habit of using it. He really will help you understand God's Word. Okay, some other specialty stuff thinking about, you know, can you trust the Bible? I was asked that question today, great question, can you trust the Bible? I hope you have a good answer for that question. Here's a little book written by Andrew Errington, which he's one of our morning speakers, Can We Trust What the Gospels Say About Jesus? If you haven't got that, if you haven't got five copies of that and handing it out to people as you have conversations with people, then really, come on. Okay. <laughs> Something else to stretch your brain. This is a great, I reckon, form a book club, right? Get together with some other Christians who want to understand sort of theology a bit better. Read this book, Graham Goldsworthy, Prayer and the Knowledge of God. It is the, the best theological approach to prayer that I've ever come across. The questions at the end of the chapters are worth the price of the book alone, and I'm not joking. The questions are brilliant, and they change the way you think about prayer, buy the book, read it to some Christian friends, second semester this year, do it. Okay, uh, other specialty stuff, science and God. Here's just an author you should know about, John Lennox. Who's read a John Lennox book? 
Heaps of you. That's excellent. There's, there's several of them up there on the bookshelf. Um, please read them. This one, Gunning for God, Why the New Atheists Are Missing the Target. We had him come and speak at Sydney Uni a couple of years ago. He was brilliant. We've tried to get him back. He's just too, in too much demand, but at least we've got his books. Praise God for that. So buy the book, read it, especially if you're a scientist, engineer, or just actually want to be able to talk to people. <laughs> Some quick books about ministry. If you lead a Bible study at Sydney Uni or at church or ever want to lead a Bible study, buy this book, Leading Better Bible Studies by Karen and Rod Morris. Buy it and use it. That's all. If, just buy it and use it, okay? Seriously. Rod Morris was my staff worker when I was in the EU. There you go. Okay. Um, but it's actually a great book. He, he was a great staff worker too. Anyway, uh, um, the story that Andrew West told you before was from this book, Shining Like Stars, Lindsay Brown, about student work around the world. This is an incredible read. This is just so uplifting, so just exciting to see how God uses students like, exactly like you around the world. I gave this to my dad, just, and he loved it. He just said it was so uplifting and exciting and just encouraging to see what God... This is a great book. It's really worth every student reading it. How much does it cost? $17. Absolutely worth it. Here's another book of how God's used student work, Proclaiming Jesus Christ Lord, the history of the EU. Now, you think I'm just doing this because we're the EU, but this is a full-on exciting read. The EU has been around at Sydney Uni for 82 years and there are some fantastic stories told in this book. So you should absolutely get it. It's 10 bucks. Seriously, get it and read it in those boring lectures that you go to sometimes. <laughs> this is just a fantastic book. Read it. Exciting. Okay, I'm running out of time. Authors. There's some key authors up there. You should just read some of these people. First one, this is Andy Hayes' favourite book. He told me at dinner, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. He said this book changed his life and changed the way he thought about, quote, everything. (laughs) There you go, big call. Um, He did say the Bible was more helpful than even this book, so that's good to know. Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper. There's a few other John Piper books up there. Other key authors you should read, something by John Stott. Look at this, Your Mind Matters. I love this book. I haven't even read it. I I... the topic is so fantastic, and John Stott is a, was, he's now gone to glory, a, a brilliant Bible reader, brilliant exegete of the Scriptures. If you haven't read something by John Stott, why not grab this? $7, your mind matters, and he's going to encourage you to think with your brain about God from the Scriptures. I reckon that is great. Get that. Um, Don Carson, you should read something by Don Carson. This book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, I want a, a brother up there just said to me, oh, that book's a little bit little, don't buy that. And I said, no, 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 this is, this is a deep book. Just as well it's small or you would just get lost. Like this is really the difficult doctrine of the love of God. I cut six dollars, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Seriously, I paid ten dollars more than that when it first came out. This is a great book. Read something by Carson. Read something by James Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Why do we evangelize if God chooses people? How does that work? Read this book, something else by James Packer. Read something by John Stott. Oh, I said that one already. How did I go? You didn't tell me to shut up. Okay, all right. Thank you.
Okay, what page are we on? Open up your books, find out what page we're on. Page 2-0, page 20. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the ages who have uh, strove to try to help us understand your word better. We pray, Father, that now as we turn our minds to understand what you have revealed to us, grant us wisdom from your Spirit to grasp what you have told us so that we might live lives to please you and that reflect your wonderful truth in Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, here we are. Last night we asked the question, how is God moving his creation all the way from creation to new creation? And the answer we saw last night was by God making promises and then coming to fulfill those promises in judgment and rescue. Is that ringing any bells? Yes, excellent, that's great. That theme that we looked at last night, the day of the Lord, it's a really important theme in the Bible. God coming in rescue and judgment to fulfill His promises. Now, if you remember when we finished last night, you'll remember that the prophecies right at the end of the Old Testament spoke of this extraordinary fulfillment to come on a future day of the Lord. When God finally comes to town, it will be absolutely spectacular. And from what the prophets of the Old Testament announced, you would be expecting major fireworks when that day of the Lord arrives. And then onto that scene walks Jesus, a carpenter. He's a chippy from Nazareth. And can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, let's start by looking at Jesus and the coming of God. What I'm going to do tonight is try to stick for this first part of the talk in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus' life and teaching and his death and resurrection. So what was Jesus' message? How did he fit into the big picture built up by the prophets of the Old Testament? You can see the heading there on page 20, Jesus' Gospel, the kingdom has come near. So Matthew records Jesus' basic message there on your page, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, which means turn around, turn back to God, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This was Jesus' gospel or Jesus' great grand announcement. The kingdom of God has come near. It's an eschatological message. The kingdom of God, that time for which you've been waiting for when the Lord God would come as king, Jesus says, it's near. In fact, it's not just near as in soon or close, it's right, it's right here, it's breaking in upon you. So if you jump down to the third passage on your sheet, Matthew 13 verse 17, Jesus says, for I assure you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see, but did not see them. They long to hear the things that you hear, 
Yet they didn't hear them. Now is the moment, see? With all those Old Testament prophecies that we looked at last night, Jesus says, here is the moment they long to see. Here is the message that they wanted to hear. And by God's grace, it's happening right now with you. And one particular moment is very helpful. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is brought a man who has a demon which has rendered this poor man both blind and mute. And Jesus promptly heals him so he can both see and speak. And the crowd say, wow, maybe Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. But the Pharisees say, no, this guy is using the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, to drive out demons. That is, this guy is in league with the devil. Well, look then at Jesus' response on your page from Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So the long-promised kingdom of God is beginning in the ministry of Jesus. But notice here, who's the enemy It's not the occupying Roman forces, is it? It's not the various physical oppressors that Israel had faced as a nation over the centuries, going right back to Egypt. It's not the Philistines, it's not the Assyrians, it's not the Babylonians or even the Romans. The enemy now is the strong man, which is not Romeo, by the way. The strong man is the evil one, the father of lives, the devil, the Satan. Jesus is claiming to be, to be able to tie up the strong man, to disarm the enemy. And this is the enemy whose whose, uh, weapons aren't chariots and spears. This enemy's weapons are sin and death. And Jesus says, I'm tying up that strong man. It's an incredible claim to authority that Jesus makes here. And then he demonstrates that this isn't just any idle claim because then he delivers this man who was oppressed by those demonic forces. And that then raises a bit of a challenging thought, I think. In light of the Old Testament prophecies, you'd assume that the kingdom of God would be some sort of political entity. After all, The kingdoms of the world were oppressing the Israelites. Hadn't God himself made Israel into a nation, a political entity where God himself was the king? And even though that kingship was exercised sometimes through human kings like David and Solomon, surely the promised kingdom of God finally must have some sort of political, this-world expression. But no, not according to Jesus. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God is radically apolitical in its worldly ambitions. In fact, you can see this when Jesus was on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus said plainly, my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of God is not a physical, political, this-worldly kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God, the rule of God. 
And you can see there on your page different ways people have tried to capture or express this idea from the Bible of the Kingdom of God. They call it the reign of God or God coming with kingly authority or God saving sovereignty or the order of things when God reigns or divine government. That's what Jesus is talking about. When God takes control, what is the order of things? What's life like then? That's the Kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said He's bringing in. So Jesus is announcing this inbreaking of this promised state of affairs when God through his Messiah would establish his rule, it will mean judgment on the ultimate enemy, the evil one himself and all who choose to follow him. And it will also mean the ultimate rescue for God's people, deliverance from sin and death and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This, this was an incredible thing to claim, an incredible moment. The Israelites have been waiting for hundreds of years for this day to dawn. And Jesus walks onto the stage and says, it's happening now in me and what I'm doing. That is one electric announcement. And yet, in Jesus' own announcement about this kingdom, he also says that the kingdom is still to come. You can saw this this morning, actually, in your morning talks where we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Because what did, what did Jesus say there? Jesus, who is the Messiah, the King in God's kingdom, He tells His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. So the kingdom in its fullness is something that still lies in the future. Now, in case you're not sure what I'm doing here, I am trying to create a problem for you tonight, right? Sometimes when you read the Bible, if you engage your brain with it, you start to put the pieces together and at some point you start to go, how does that work exactly? I'm trying to get you to that illuminating moment, right? Jesus has said, the kingdom is breaking in in my own ministry and then he says, and you guys should pray, your kingdom come, future, So what is it? Is it breaking in now or is it coming in in the future? Which one is it? Well, I'm going to skip over section 3. I'm going to jump straight to section 4, just in the interest of time. Still there on page 20. So, when will this kingdom arrive? Fully. The key text that we need to turn to here is actually in the Old Testament. The key background to Jesus' announcement about the kingdom is Daniel chapter 7, uh, particularly verses 13 and 14. And it's there on your page. Here Daniel records a vision that he was given when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. Let me read it to you. I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, what's extraordinary about this particular vision that Daniel's given is that this human, because son of man just means a human being, 
this human is given such an exalted position by God. So exalted that he shares prerogatives that really belong to God alone. He's given authority and glory and sovereign power such that all the nations of the world serve him. His rule is everlasting. It's forever. It's an incredible picture of the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom where his chosen one, this son of man, rules over all. And this rule begins there in that vision with the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days with the clouds of heaven. And that's going to be significant. Now, the fascinating and quite frankly shocking thing that Jesus did was he chose that phrase from Daniel, Son of Man, and used it for his own nickname. See, of all the nicknames or titles you could choose, you know, he could have called himself (laughs) J-Man or Super Jesus or, frankly, even just Messiah or Christ, Jesus chose Son of Man. He chose the most exalted, even if the most sort of ambiguous figure in the entire Old Testament as his nickname. And the message from Daniel is that the kingdom of God comes when the Son of Man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. So if you're looking for the kingdom of God, you're looking for the moment when God will finally fulfill all of his purposes. When will that happen? When the Son of Man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Okay, right, so when will that be? Well, let's see what Jesus said. I'm now looking at Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, there on your page. He says, When they persecute you, talking to his disciples, in one town, escape to another. Here's a bit to underline. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So the Son of Man is going to come, that is come on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, because that's what the Son of Man coming language is referring to, to the book of Daniel. He's going to come on the clouds to the Ancient of Days before His disciples have even finished evangelizing around Israel. And then Jesus is even more specific in the next passage, Matthew chapter 16. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father... And then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So within the lifetime of some of his first century hearers, the Son of Man was going to come in his kingdom. Some of those people standing there that day will see it for themselves. The Son of Man coming with the clouds to receive the kingdom. So, to what event in actual history can Jesus be referring? When will the Son of Man come on the clouds to receive the kingdom? When did that happen? Well, it gets even clearer when Jesus is on trial before the Jewish authorities. It's there this time on Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus knows he's about to be killed. He's told his disciples several times throughout his ministry that he's going to be rejected by the leaders, he's going to be killed and rise again. And what he says to them is, from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds. The moment of his coming is about to happen. It's going to be the state of play from now on. So when does he come? I take it that Jesus is talking about the moment of his death, his resurrection and his exaltation to the Father's right hand. That's the moment when the Son of Man comes. That's the moment when the kingdom of God is established, when Jesus, the Son of Man, begins his rule, when he's killed, raised, and exalted to his Father's right hand. That's the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And that then starts to make sense of what Jesus had said earlier to the disciples. Because he said, some here, some of you won't die before you see the Son of Man coming. And sure, many of his disciples, especially the 12 apostles, they were witnesses to Jesus' death, his resurrection and his ascension 40 days later. And in fact, when you look at Acts chapter 1, how is the resurrected Jesus taken from their sight? When Luke describes it in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, he says, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud hid him from their sight. Luke's not just making a meteorological observation. Wow, he just remembers it was a cloudy day, they said. See, this is what I'm saying, if you don't know your Old Testament, we tend to read the New Testament and go, oh, whatever. It was the cloud. He's gone up on the, the Son of Man coming on the cloud to the Ancient of Days. And what does that mean? It means that the Son of Man is beginning His rule. It means that the Son of Man has come. It means that the Kingdom of God has been... Big moment, that cloud thing. Big moment. Now let's just pause and reflect on that for a minute. What we're saying is from that moment that Jesus died, was raised and then rose to his Father's presence, he, was, he, he is the Son of Man who's been given authority over everything. It's as Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 28, after his resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friend, that is who Jesus is. I don't mean as a figure of history, that's who he was. I mean, that is who Jesus is now, today, right now, this moment. Who is Jesus? I'll tell you who he is. He is the Son of Man sitting at the right-hand side of the Father with all authority and glory and power over all things. That's who he is right now. He's real, he's alive, he's physical, and he is ruling. You know what that means? 
It means that someone is in control. Someone good. Someone powerful. Someone who loves you. Someone who knows what it's like to be you. And He's in control. And that, my friend, is very good news, isn't it? See, as far as I can work out, there are at least three lies that we tend to buy when it comes to control. First lie goes like this, we think that we have control. Some of us like to think that we really can control what happens to us. If I work harder, I'll get that HD and then I'll get the summer internship and with that top company and then I'll get that career I want. Or maybe if I just do this, that and the other thing to please my parents, then they'll come around to letting me marry that person or choose a different career. Or maybe if I just be nice to him and stay his girlfriend, I'm sure he'll become a Christian. Well, I'm sorry to break you the bad news, but it doesn't necessarily work like that. You just don't have that much control. You might think you do, but you don't. The second lie is when we realise that actually we can't control anything and we begin to think that we're totally at the mercy of the system which is against us. The government stops me getting ahead. My bosses keep overlooking me for promotion. My family background meant that I never got the advantage that others had. The banks won't cut me a good deal. Global warming meant it rained on my wedding day. <laughs> There's no one on my side. That's a lie. That's not true. There is someone, someone very powerful who is definitely on your side. The third lie is what we can start to think when we realise the first two lies are lies. And then we start to believe that no one has any control. Not me, not the system, not anyone. We're all just blown around by chance and forces over which none of us, if we're honest, have any lasting control. That's why empires crumble, natural disasters happen, you get sick your friend dies in a car accident, your parents split up, your company goes bankrupt, who's really got any control? Answer, no one. But see, that, that's a lie too, isn't it? There is one man, one human being, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's the risen and ascended Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, the sort of control that Jesus exercises isn't the every-detail type control of a control freak. It's not the control that ensure. It, sorry, it is, rather, it's the control that out of any situation, in fact, every situation, even the truly terrible, he is able to work it for good, according to Romans 8. The sort of control that Jesus exercises is the sort of control that ensures that even the most testing and the most trying situation will not be more than you are able to bear with His strength. 
according to 1 Corinthians 13. The sort of control that Jesus exercises is the sort of control and power that means he can keep his promise to preserve you and grow you in his own likeness through the most difficult times, according to 1 Thessalonians 5. See, knowing that Jesus is alive and ruling tonight is an incredibly reassuring truth. In the midst of all our insecurities and uncertainties, because frankly, who knows what joys and sorrows you will have to face this year? I don't. You don't. Let alone for the next 60 years. But no matter what comes, you can be absolutely sure from here to the very end of your days that there is one person who is totally in control, who has all authority in heaven and earth given to him and who loves you more than you know. How can I be so sure of that? Because God raised him from the dead. He's alive and ruling. So it's reassuring, but may I say, it's also pretty challenging. See, it's really hard to give up trusting in yourself, especially when you're still young enough to actually believe that the world is there for your taking. Is trusting yourself to Jesus really the way of wisdom? Well, it is, my friends, because ultimately you do know that trying to control everything, in fact, even just trying to control the really important things, is impossible for you. It's like trying to control the wind. It's like trying to herd cats. <laughs> See, if you, try to, if you try to herd cats, we have a cat. If you try to herd cats, it's not just that it's quite complicated... It is complicated. The real problem is you're just not powerful enough to control a cat. (laughs) Well, may I say, Jesus has been raised from the dead as Lord of all, and you haven't. So maybe trusting Him is not such a silly move. The writer of the Proverbs says this, he says, those who trust in themselves are fools. Entrust yourself to Jesus. It's not giving up. It's giving it over to the one who does have the authority and the power, who knows and loves you. Okay. Well, back to what else Jesus has to say about the coming of the Son of Man. We've just seen that uh, He points to His death and resurrection and ascension as the great moment when the Son of Man comes. And I'm going to leave you to look at the passages in section 5 to fill out that picture of what will happen when he comes. Let's keep pressing down on the issue of when the end will come. And that brings us to section 6, signs of the end, and a doozy of a chapter in the Bible, Matthew chapter 24. Now, this needs a little bit of care. Uh, The saying goes, much ink has been spilt over the meaning of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, if you choose to go to AFES 
NTE, National Training Event Conference, in December, which I strongly recommend you do. I'll be there. They're going to spend the whole week looking at just Matthew 24 and 25. So I figure I can do it in about seven minutes. (laughs) Now, this particular chapter has become a great mine, right, where you can dig out any great grand apocalyptic schema that you want out of this chapter. Probably second only to sort of, or third only to Revelation and Daniel. So this this chapter has been much abused. So we need to be careful here, use our brains. So what I've tried to do is I've divided the chapter, I've reproduced the chapter there for you, and I've divided it up into sections to try to show you how I'm making sense of it. Now the context here is really important. If you look at the last few verses in the chapter before, you can see that Jesus has just announced judgment on national Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what Jesus is doing there is very similar to the prophets that we read about last night, isn't it? He's announcing God's judgment even on his own people, warning them about the day of the Lord, that it will be a day of darkness, of judgment, not light or rescue for them. And so we can read there from Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, there on your page. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came and called his attention to the temple buildings. Because he's just pronounced that the temple will be destroyed. And they're saying, but look at the buildings, look at the buildings. Then he replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And so the disciples respond with a question in verse 3. While Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But notice here, Jesus' disciples have made an assumption. They mention three different things and assume that all three are going to happen at once, the same moment, the destruction of Jerusalem the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age. They've, they've, put the, they've brought them all in together. But what Jesus then makes clear in the rest of the chapter is that these won't all happen together. And so the rest of the chapter is Jesus' answer to that three-pronged question. So first of all, Jesus says, don't be confused, the signs are not the end. So reading from verse 4, then Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. It's worth underlining that bit. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offence, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered." This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations and then, worth underlining that word, and then the end will come. 
So according to Jesus, there's going to be a time of war, verse 6, persecution, verse 9, spiritual deception, verse 11, and ungodly behaviour and apostasy, verse 12, before the end comes. But it's also a time where the gospel will be preached throughout the world, verse 14. So I take it that Jesus is talking about the time that you and I live in now. In fact, the time that we've been living in since the day of Jesus' ascension. But Jesus says, don't get confused. These are just the signs of the end, the birth pains, he says. The final end that you're asking about only comes after these things. And then Jesus moves to focus on Jerusalem as a particular application of what that principle or the, the description he's just given. The destruction of Jerusalem is not actually the end. So verse 15. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive." but those days will be limited because of the elect. So Jerusalem will be destroyed because of national Israel's refusal to listen to God, their refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah God had promised. And Jesus is saying, when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, get out, don't hang around, because it's going to be awful when God's judgment comes on this city. Get out of Jerusalem while you can. And you know, only 40 years later, after Jesus' prediction here about Jerusalem, that's what happened. In AD 70, in response to a Jewish uprising, the Romans surrounded the city and they destroyed it. And if you go and read the descriptions, the descriptions of that destruction, it was horrific. So just as he had done previously, God uses a foreign power to come to his people in judgment. Once it was the Assyrians, once it was the Babylonians, this time the Romans. So what about the coming of the Son of Man then? Jesus' point is pretty simple. When the Son of Man comes and brings the end, the final end, not the destruction of Jerusalem, but the final end, you will certainly know it. Verse 23, if anyone tells you then, look, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I've told you in advance, so if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, Mike Kwan, can you go to the back now, please? Thank you. 
Has Mike Kwan moved to the back? Yes, thank you. I'm there at verse uh, 26. So if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. So what he's saying is when the Son of Man does come, it's going to be as obvious as lightning. It will be as obvious as vultures hovering over a carcass. So don't fall for those who say, Jesus has returned over here, or Jesus has returned over there. When the Son of Man comes, it'll be obvious. Everyone will know. But what will that end be like when he comes? Well, by now it shouldn't surprise us that when he's asked to talk about the end of the age, Jesus resorts to the same sort of cosmic, apocalyptic language used by the prophets to talk about the day of the Lord. So looking from verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers shall, will be shaken. And then the Son of Man, the, sorry, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great authority. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus describes the final end, the fi his final coming in these apocalyptic cosmic terms. Well, what's the benefit of knowing all this stuff? How does this help anyone? Jesus then turns to application. So read the signs, the end is near, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognise that he is near, at the door. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, just stop and... Notice what he says there in verse 34. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. I take it that the all these things he's referring to is the destruction of Jerusalem, which did take place within the generation of his hearers. But the point of Jesus speaking about all of this is so that when you see wars on the TV... When you hear about persecution, as you did if you went to one of the seminars today from 13.3, when you hear about spiritual deception or ungodliness of Christians or even Christians giving up their faith, you're to read the sign. What's the sign telling you? He is near. He is at the door. The end will soon be here. 
but don't get too carried away with trying to predict exactly when. Because we don't know exactly when, we just know it's going to be sudden and unexpected. Verse 36, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. You should read the signs, he's near. But don't think that you can know precisely when. Not even Jesus, as he spoke that day, knew that time. We can see it's near from the signs, but we just know it's going to come suddenly and for many it will be unexpected. So what should you do with this information? Jesus is clear, be ready. Verse 42, therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." And the whole of the, next, the rest of the chapter and into chapter 25 really are more stories that Jesus tells, parables, to encourage you to be ready for his unexpected and sudden coming when the end comes, at the end of the time of testing. So how can we draw all of this together? Well, at the top of page 23, I've tried to draw it all together into one diagram for you. If you like diagrams, you'll love it. If you don't get diagrams, then listen up. From Jesus' point of view in the Gospels, which is the dotted line on the left side of the diagram, as Jesus looks forward, what he sees is the coming of the Son of Man, which would begin at his death and resurrection and ascension to the Heavenly Father. But but that, that coming of the Son of Man is not just one moment. Warning, challenging thought coming now, right? The coming of the Son of Man is about Jesus receiving authority and power from the Father, right? And beginning to reign. It's not about Jesus changing merely location. He's coming from earth to heaven. No, it's about His relationship with His heavenly Father. He is coming to His heavenly Father and receiving authority and glory and power. So the coming of the Son of Man is about His relationship with His Heavenly Father. It begins a whole new era. The era of the coming of the Son of Man, when He reigns with this authority and power. So another way the New Testament puts it is that we are today in the last days. Because Jesus, the last one, has come. He's alive. And for as long as Jesus, the last one, lives, we are in the last days. And yet, as we've seen, Jesus also then talks about when the Son of Man comes with His holy angels to judge all the peoples of the earth, which clearly has not yet happened. It still lies in the future. 
That's the great and final end still to come that, Matt, that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 24. And so between the, both his initial coming in his resurrection and ascension and the final coming at the great end, we live in the birth pains. We don't know when the end will come, but we wait and we're ready. Okay, so, was that heavy? Yeah. Filled up your brain a little bit? Okay, good. What we've been looking at so far tonight is what Jesus said about the end. In this final section of the talk, I want us to reflect on what Jesus achieved when he came with respect to the end. And we want to explore it in the sense that Jesus is the end of God's promises and purposes. So I'm now up to part B, the end achieved in Jesus, partway down page 23. So you can see there the diagram on your page under the Apostles' perspective that it was only, I think, really after Jesus' resurrection and particularly at his ascension that the Apostles got the idea that Jesus had gone to the Father and that he would return. It was there in Acts chapter 1 when the messengers, the divine messengers said, this same Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go. So you have the Apostles' perspective there on page 23. Looking back, they say, well, the Lord Jesus came, and then they look forward right throughout the New Testament saying, He'll come again. But what I want to focus on here is the significance of those two comings in terms of the promises that God made that we looked at last night. When are the promises fulfilled? At Jesus' first coming or His second coming? Where are they fulfilled? Well, the first thing you notice is that when the apostles look back to what Jesus achieved at his first coming, they announce categorically that God's promises have been fulfilled. You can see it there from Acts chapter 13, verse 32. Uh, Paul here is preaching to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he says, And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise... That was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, it is to be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So Paul's logic goes like this. He says, Jesus has been raised from the dead. That tells you he's the Messiah. But if the Messiah has come, then the moment when God is fulfilling all His promises has now arrived. The great wait is over, our time in exile is over, our time under God's wrath is at an end. He's holding out now the offer of forgiveness for our sins and to save us in the person of the Messiah. In other words, all the things that you were expected to be available at the end, resurrection, forgiveness, They are all now on offer. The end has been reached. The end is here. And you see a similar sort of announcement in Acts chapter 2. And yet even though they announced that the promises had been fulfilled, it's also apparent in their preaching that they hadn't been completely fulfilled. God's promises still await a complete fulfilment. Have a look there on your sheet at Acts chapter 3. 
verse uh, 19 to 21. The Apostle Peter here is speaking to the Jews in the temple and he says, Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome Him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of His holy prophets from the beginning. And you can see similar points where the apostles look forward to a future complete fulfilment in the other places in Acts listed there on your page. So we end up with the situation in the diagram at the bottom of page 23. The Lord came and has fulfilled all of His promises, and yet the Lord will come again and there'll be a complete fulfilment, a restoration of all things. Now, just as a heads up, on Thursday night, we're going to focus in on the complete fulfilment that comes about when Jesus returns. That talk is a little bit of a doozy. Like, uh, you might want to bring a blanket. (laughs) Anyway... Tonight, I want to just focus in on the fulfilment bit of that diagram. So the question we're going to ask is, how is the end achieved in Jesus as we finish up? But I'm going to just tell you a story, just to sort of break the mood. This story has a moral. This is the moral. Sometimes... You've just got to realise it's just not about you. It's just not about you. Now, my wife Jenny uh, recently reminded me of an incident a few years back that highlights this moral. Uh, We were expecting our third child, and I mean really expecting, as in Jesus was in labour expecting. We were at home. (laughs) We were at home and... (laughs) Jesus was expecting. No, Jenny was expecting. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I guess Jesus was expecting, he was expecting Jenny, who was expecting (laughs) to give birth, like we all were. Okay, let's try again. So, Jenny is there, standing in the kitchen, having contractions. And as contractions do, they were getting closer and closer, and more and more intense. Now, this was our third delivery. I'd had a little bit of experience of this labour and birth thing, and I'd learnt that you can end up in hospital for quite some time. I mean, the labour can go on and on, and then there's the delivery, and then there's the settling in afterwards, and I'd learnt from previous experience that as the bloke, you need to go prepared. In particular, if you don't take precautions, you might go without a feed for a very long time. And, and food is very important if you're a bloke. 
You're laughing, but you know it's true. <laughs> so Jenny's there doing some pretty heavy breathing. And I'm standing there in the kitchen with the big esky out. <laughs> and I'm making sandwiches. I'm putting in drinks, a few snacks, making myself quite a, quite a little hamper, really. After all, we could be there for quite some time. Meanwhile, Jenny's saying, between grimaces, I really think we should get in the car. This is, grimace grown, very full on. Yeah, 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 I say, I'm I'm just finishing making myself some more snacks. (laughs) And then she said, Rowan... This is not about you and your snacks. (laughs) And I must admit, ah, at that moment, the light dawned. This moment with my wife doubling up in pain and our child about to be born, yes, this moment is not really about me. (laughs) So I picked up the esky and we headed for the car. I mean, I, I had prepared all those lovely snacks. Sometimes you just need to wake up and realise it's just not about me. Now that is a hard thing to realise because most of the time we do think everything deep down is about us. We are the centre of our own little universe. Even when it comes to Christianity, we make it all about us, all about me. It's about my relationship with God. It's about God's love for me. It's about my future with God beyond death. Even though Jesus is the means by which all of those things are possible, somehow Jesus isn't the centre. Somehow I am. But of course, the terrible, that's a terrible distortion of the truth. Jesus is the focus. It is, after all, Christianity, not Rowanianity. If you get a proper grasp of what the Bible says about eschatology, actually, it will help you realise that it really is all about Jesus. That's why I'm trying to make Jesus the focus of this talk. We've looked at what Jesus said about the end, and now I want to just focus on how Jesus, in what he achieved for us in his ministry, how he he is the end. At the centre, eschatology is not about you, it's about Jesus. Now, there are plenty of implications for you, great blessings for you, and we'll get to those sort of tomorrow night. But at the centre, Christian eschatology is about Christ. So I hope that what tonight does for you a little is shakes your self-centred worldview and it refocuses your glasses to put the Lord Jesus at the centre of Christianity. So how is Jesus the end achieved? Okay, well, think for a moment. What did we see last night? God makes a promise and then he comes to fulfill his promise. The Lord comes and he comes in judgment and rescue. That's the fulfillment, right? We got that? Let's just think about that pattern. Well, guess what? He made a promise and then... The Lord God came. 
He came in the person of Jesus, didn't he? Jesus is God come amongst us. It's the wonder of the incarnation. That the one true living God became a human being in the person of Jesus. And he lived among us. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We've seen His glory, the glory as the one and only Son of the Father. So the Old Testament prophets had spoken about this day when the Lord would come and dwell with His people, but they never imagined, as far as I, I mean, I... I guess they had never imagined that God would actually come as a human being to dwell amongst them. They'd probably never imagined that he would come as, in such a physical and tangible and earthly way. See, God has not just come amongst us. He became one of us. Wow, the Lord really has indeed come. But from what we know last night is that when the Lord comes to fulfil His promise, He comes in judgment and rescue. How does that happen in the ministry of Jesus? Well, have a look there on your page carefully at Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Paul's reflecting on the death and resurrection of Jesus and see if you can find rescue and judgment here. Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, let's start with judgment. Who's judged there? Well, the answer is Jesus is judged. It's there in verse 10. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. It's a very brief way of what Paul says in other places more extensively, that that Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world from Romans 3. Or God condemns sin in Jesus' flesh at his death in Romans 8. So at the cross, God's wrath against sin was poured out on Jesus. So what was the Old Testament promise? One day God will come and judge all the sin of the world. It's already happened. Hasn't it? It happened at the cross. Judgment on the world's sin has already happened. That end has been achieved. What about rescue? Who's rescued here in this verse? Well, the most important answer here in Romans 6 is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's rescued. In his resurrection, he's rescued from the dominion of death. Death no longer has any control over him. He will never die again. So you can fill in the diagram on your page, at the middle of page 24... At the cross, Jesus is judged as he bears the sins of the world and in his resurrection, Jesus is rescued from the power of death. Do you see what I'm trying to show you? That Jesus is actually the fulfilment of all of those promises that God made. Jesus is judged and justice is served. Jesus is rescued and God fulfills his purposes for his creatures in this one man. But let's just dig down a little bit deeper into exactly what God was doing there in Jesus' death and resurrection. Point C, 
the superabundant undoing of Adam's sin. Remember, the big picture we looked at yesterday in the first talk was that God is taking His creation all the way through to new creation. Well, here is what God does in fixing up the mess that started with Adam in the Garden of Eden. But the question is, how is God achieving that end of fixing up Adam's mess in Jesus? Well, according to the New Testament, what God was doing in Jesus is this superabundant undoing of Adam's failure. Have a look at the diagram there on your page. Can you see it there? With Adam and Jesus. So in the garden, Adam fell away from God's purposes. He sinned. He rejected God's purposes. That's what that downward arrow is meant to signify, right? Now, which of the two arrows next to Jesus' name represents what God did in Jesus? Ooh. So, did Jesus start where Adam started and do what Adam failed to do, that is, he was obedient. So that's sort of like the first diagram. Instead of falling, he was obedient. Or did Jesus start where Adam landed? And what Jesus sort of achieved was getting us back to the situation in which Adam was in the garden before the fall. That's the rightmost arrow. Which of the two alternatives do you think is right? I'm going to give you five seconds to talk to the person next to you and put your tick somewhere in those boxes. Okay, that's enough time. Okay, so quick, hands up. Who ticked the first box, the left one? Hand up if you ticked the first box. Be bold. Hand up if you ticked the right box, the right-hand box. Oh, of course, you all ticked the right box, yeah. The, the right-hand box, okay. Who ticked neither? <laughs> Gutless wonders. Okay, who... <laughs> Who ticked both? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> the answer is, the answer is, they're both wrong. Or maybe at a pinch you could say they're both right. The best answer was to draw your own arrow. <laughs> Who drew their own arrow and hadn't, has not seen this before? My prediction is you people will make a lot of money in life. Okay. <laughs> Give it all to mission work. Thank you. The best answer is probably to reject both and draw your own arrow. That starts at the very bottom and goes to the very top, sort of combining both the arrows. Why is that? See... Jesus didn't start in the condition Adam was before Adam sinned, somehow outside the curse and the reign of sin. Jesus starts where Adam lands, in flesh exactly like yours and mine, facing real temptation like you and me. You can see it from Romans 8 verse 3, if you look it up later. God condemns sin in the flesh by sending His Son in flesh like ours under sin's rule. 
So Jesus starts where Adam starts, but, but nor is it that Jesus just returns us to Adam's pre-fall state. As we saw in Romans 6, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is now dead to sin and alive to God. He's in a situation that Adam was never in, even before Adam sinned in the garden. He's now free from sin's power. So can you see here how, G- how God has, has achieved his original purposes? Adam failed. How is God going to rectify the situation? In the person of Jesus, he's achieved the end. Here's the super abundant overcoming of Adam's failure, which is your failure and my failure. God's promises and purposes have been fulfilled in this Jesus, in his death and resurrection. So putting it all together, we've seen tonight that from where we landed last night, things have now become a bit clearer. You can see the diagram there, putting it all together. At the end of the Old Testament, we were left with this promise of a future coming of the Lord with extraordinary fulfilment, all this cosmic language. When Jesus takes centre stage, we see that this coming of the Lord is in fact the coming of the Son of Man and it happens in these two movements. First, the Lord came in the person of his son Jesus and as you'd expect there was judgment and rescue in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's purposes but what was surprising was that Jesus was the focus of both. He was the Lord who came, he was the one who was judged, he was the one who was rescued and so all of God's purposes were fulfilled in that one human being, Jesus the Messiah. And yet from Jesus' own teaching we know that there is a future coming as well when the promises fulfilled already will have their complete fulfilment and you and I live in the middle between the two comings of the Lord. How are we to live in the meantime? What are we to do with this revelation of God's purposes and plans? What difference does it all make? Well, the conclusion there at page 25. Right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have this instruction from Jesus on how to live now, between the two comings. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. So because Jesus has been given this authority, because he rules right at the Father's right hand tonight, the right response is to start treating him as the Lord that he is. That's what it means to become his disciple. To be someone who says, yes, I will follow you. To take on his teaching, to treat him as the one who has that authority. That's why Jesus says, therefore, because I've got this authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. In light of his unique authority, that's the appropriate thing to do. So I think there's three basic responses to what we've seen tonight. First is this, repent. Friends, if you have not made the decision to follow Jesus, to become his disciple, you really should. Not because you'll have a better life, though you probably will have much more joy. Not because it's cool, because it's never cool to be a Christian. Not because it's all about you, 
because it isn't. You should decide to follow Jesus because of who Jesus is. Because he is the Son of Man who's been raised from the dead and given all authority in heaven and on earth. Because he loves you and he knows you and he longs for you to turn and entrust yourself to him. All it takes is that decision. There's no special words, no magic prayer. It's just a decision to entrust yourself to the one who truly has the power and the authority and your best interest at heart. If you're here tonight, let me say, and you, you know it's time to make that decision, make sure at the end of the session you come down to the front over on this side and speak with one of the EU staff workers who will be down there because we'd love to rejoice with you that you've made that decision and make sure you tell your review group tomorrow because we'd love to rejoice together with you. But the second response to what we've seen tonight is right there in Jesus' instructions, make disciples. Now, often I hear us talking about the need to make disciples because Jesus is coming back to judge. You don't want anyone to be on the wrong side of that judgment. Now, that's right, and we're going to talk more about that on Thursday night. But notice, that's not the motivation that Jesus gives here, is it? Here we're to make disciples because Jesus is the one with the authority. We make disciples not out of fear, but out of a desire to see Jesus glorified, to see Him honoured as He ought to be in people's lives, by them giving to Him their trust, their allegiance as His disciple. So we make disciples because of who Jesus is, because He is the Son of Man. So when you're in your tute this semester or you're in Wentworth, or in Palmer, or at Manning, when you're sitting next to your friend who doesn't know Jesus, and the thought comes to you, I should say something. I should invite them to an EU public meeting, or to a small group, or to a faculty evangelistic event, or tell them what I learned at church last night, or just tell them about Jesus. Can I say... Don't ignore that thought. Say something. Pray for the Spirit's power and be bold at that moment. Don't do it out of guilt. Don't do it out of fear. Do it because Jesus is real, because He is the unique Son of Man with all authority and power who is sitting at the Father's right hand. Do it because Jesus really is worthy of everyone's worship and it is a travesty for them and for him that they're not his disciple. Do it because of who Jesus is. Well, the final response to what we've seen tonight was the point Jesus made back in Matthew 24. The final coming of the Son of Man is still to come, so be ready. But we're going to talk about that in the days to come. So let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to dwell amongst us, to achieve your purposes, to bring in your kingdom. 
and that you have raised him and exalted him to your own right hand with all power and authority and glory. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us live our lives in light of that truth, that you might bring us to repentance, that we might make his disciples, that we will be ready for his return. We praise you for these wonderful things and ask for your help as we seek to live them out to your glory and praise. Amen.